Due to the graphic nature of this podcast, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussion of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. This is a prepaid collect call from an incarcerated individual at County Detention Center. This call is not private. It will be recorded and may be monitored. Guess what time it is? It's time for crime! In this episode, we'll be discussing Brian F. Noss case. We hope to answer the following questions. How do you spend your money? What do you mail to your in-laws? And do you know anyone who's a blabbermouth? So listen in and find out more. But for now, try not to end up on an episode, unless you're a guest. Hey guys, this is your host, Vanny. And this is Kat. Welcome, new friends, and welcome back, our little stalkers. We hope to catch more of you today on this new episode. So, Miss Kat, how are you today? Hey, I'm doing fine, doing fine. So, things have been busy at work, but otherwise, things have been fine. How about with you? Things are going good. It's funny, I am making all these changes at work, and I'm about to go on maternity maternity leave, and so that's going to be a very interesting uh handoff. <laughs> yes, yes. I have to, we're getting we're getting close to having to take a needed a short needed break here. Yes. So giving you guys a heads up, I'll be probably going out soon with the bang. <laughs> but we'll come back with a, a third co host, little gabs. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully no crying in the background. <laughs> Anyways, well I'm glad you're doing good and things are at least warming up in Arizona. I don't know how it is across the other side of the world in the country, but it's definitely warmer in Arizona, and I'm enjoying that part. It is, because, boy, we got hammered with some winter storms. Yeah, I saw a lot of storms and no snow for me, thanks. Can't do snow. No, but, I mean, got up north, got some of places got as high as 14 inches. Yeah, you get a warning, because, like, our corporate office is out of Boston for work, and... I keep getting a text message and phone call like, if you can, please work from home. I'm like, sir, I am working from home. <laughs> <laughs> I'm enjoying this work from home. So, Well, let's uh, get going with our case today. But before we get going, let's remind everyone of the question of last week's um, episode, which was, who was the youngest woman ever sentenced to death in the U.S.? Ms. Kat, I'll let you... Okay. Read this great little story. I will, I will. And I was, and I have to say I was wrong because I thought for sure it was Carla Faye Tucker out of Texas, but I would be wrong. So it was Krista Gale Pike. Uh, she is the youngest woman to be sentenced to death in the United States. She was 20 when convicted of the torture murder of a classmate that she committed when she was 18 years of age. She became jealous of the 19-year-old Colleen Slemmer, who she thought was trying to steal her boyfriend from her. She was charged with first-degree murder and conspiracy to commit murder and was sentenced to death by electrocution for the murder charge and 25 years in prison for a conspiracy charge. And as of June 7th, 2021, Pike's attorney filed a motion to oppose the execution date or request a certificate of commutation. So they're still trying to fight the death sentence. That's intense. That's pretty young. Yeah. And murder torture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was a little thought that went into that one, I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. She must have been a very controlling kind of girl. I mean, what? I wonder what the boyfriend's doing nowadays. Yeah. Right? He's going, dodged a bullet, dodged a bullet, dodged a bullet. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> That's crazy. Crazy case. People, I mean, kids nowadays, I swear. <laughs> exactly. Although she was born in what, 1976? So she's not much older than me. Uh, but Old enough not to be doing that. That's for sure. Jeez. Well, let's jump into our little case and I'll just give a little quick recap of what the case is about it's was uh it happened in 1999 a man was convicted of killing his wife by forcing cocaine down her throat and beating her and was sentenced to 50 years to prison and this case is about brian efnoff 
That's how you say his last name. Yes. So people that have been here for a little bit are probably familiar with this case. So it's, an, it's another one from Awatuki, our little pocket in Awatuki. Yeah, it's, you know, one of the uh, nicer, more upscale neighborhoods. And they've certainly have been having a lot of uh, calamity lately. Yeah, at least in the 90s they were. I mean, maybe that was why, like it was, it was up and coming in the 90s, like things were starting to get more built. Yeah, I don't know, because maybe they're uh, tucked behind that little mountain in the foothills, and maybe they just thought that they were all that. Yeah, I mean, it's, I love looking at Awatiki foothills, like from South Mountain, and I've always liked a lot of the homes down there when you're seeing it from the mountain, but from all I've known of when I moved to Arizona, it was very expensive to live in Awatiki, so... I did kind of a little digging to see what was an average cost of a home in the 90s, or like in this time frame, the 99s, and a home was like 179k, which at that time was a lot of money. Yeah, because a lot of just your average houses, I think, were probably about a th- 100,000 back then. But yeah, to think about living in Awatuki at the time would have been very expensive, and I tried to do some little digging of uh, what Brian did as you know, for a living or what his wife did for a living. And the only one that was positive was that his wife was saleswoman for Neiman Marcus. And his was kind of up in the air, kept saying he was a salesman or he owned a auto parts business. It was very little um, confusing to exactly what did he do for a living. Yeah. And I thought it was odd that he had an executive assistant. So what was he doing that required a female executive assistant? I don't know, but if you got to know a little bit more of this case, or if you know of this case, he kind of was like known as some playboy. He was like the Hugh Hefner of Awatuki, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Or he thought he was. At least he thought he was, yeah. Yeah. Have money, we'll travel. But you know, their pictures when they were younger, they were both a very attractive couple. So Yes, they were. They were. And somebody was bringing in the money because... You know, they were in a very affluent neighborhood, so. And they had two kids, so if they, they like, could afford this, I'm like, meanwhile, here I am, like, I can't barely afford one, so. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know how people afford kids now, but yikes. But there's not much about the background. I mean, um, the her, his wife's name was Judy, and she was from North Dakota. I don't know much about Brian's background besides we don't even know what he really worked at, but he's definitely the main suspect in this case, which most husbands are, I guess. And if, you, if your wife dies, the husband's usually the first suspect, right? Yep. They always look right at the inner circle and they work outward. So yeah, it's very common for the spouse to be the first person looked at. But I think out of all this whole case, everything was definitely about his attitude, his personality really came through as like in a negative way. And this is the first time I've ever seen a case where it was actually in a negative way. Yeah. He was so narcissistic, so condescending. He was just smarter than everybody. He was so sure that this was going to be turned over that he didn't want to take a plea. He was like already talking about his lawsuits against the city, lawsuits against the police station like he was so sure of so many things that that arrogance I think took the best out of him and and the focus of what he should have been paying attention to yeah exactly so let us go back in time to September 24th 1999 and we will lay out the case for you absolutely so bring it on back to 1999 (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so it was interesting because she actually Judy was actually seen uh, the night before. She was seen on September 23rd about 9:30 p.m. A friend of Brian and Judy's had stopped by and was there about 30 30 to 60 minutes before uh Brian and this friend decided to take off and go to the casino. However, the friend did admit even though he was at the house for upwards of Uh, half an hour to an hour, he actually never saw Judy that night. Hmm. So these two take off and they're going to one of the, one of the many casinos we have here in the Metro Valley. And they went to the casino and they, 
the casino footage shows them getting there about 1145-ish on the night of September 23rd. For some reason, they had video footage, and I don't even know what this really has to do with the case, but they have video footage of them in the parking lot changing a tire on the car. Maybe just to have it as an alibi that this is what they were doing at that time. I guess. They said they went to the casino, but then the police pull out this footage and they were changing a tire in the parking lot on the way in. I was like, okay. So anyway, they go into the casino and they're gambling and they're doing their thing. And the friend runs out of money. And the friend's like, well, I'm out of money. I'm done. Because <laughs> he's not going to, you know, lose his house and everything he owns to gambling. So he's trying to leave because he's out of money, which is the sensible thing to do. And Brian's like, no, no, let's stay here. I've got it. And he's he's given this guy money to continue to gamble. And so they were there till like four in the morning. And they wind up returning home at like five in the morning. And so they come in the house and he's you know, putting his stuff away and looking around and he goes upstairs and he finds Judy in the master bath. Mm -hmm. And so she's laying there. Basically, she she just, she looks like she's really been through the ringer. And he uh, tells uh, the detective on scene that she was blue like somebody beat the shit out of her. And that is what Brian Eftonoff told Detective Joe uh, Postrino just right out of the gate that she just looked like somebody beat her up and she was just blue. And she was a healthy, a healthy 30 year old mother of two. And here she was found in the bathroom, just dying. <laughs> well, actually not dying dead. So, um, yeah. So the police are kind of like, okay, they're looking around, you know, what kind of case do we have? And then he admits that she did cocaine, but, he really didn't care for it, and he urged her not to do it. Mm -hmm. And so they find her purse, and they go through it. And of course, what do they find in her purse but a little bag of white powder? <laughs> so they tested it, and it was not talcum powder. Well, and I think, you know, that's this whole cocaine thing, you know, there's a lot of stories behind this of when did she actually start doing cocaine. Um, she has a friend that testifies and says that it was went after she got married to Brian. So was it Brian that introduced her to cocaine? Yeah, I mean, if I had to hazard a guess, and this is just an opinion, um, if I had to hazard a guess, I would almost say he did. Or was she doing cocaine to escape the relationship? Yeah, his cheating, and they, you know, they had a pretty tenuous kind of domestic relationship anyway. There were arguments, there were times that he slapped her around. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, hard to say. It's kind of hard to, to say. And, you know, uh, also his demeanor about it, you know, that he tells the cop that or he tells somebody that um, she was a coke whore. I mean, that alone, I get it that in the, in the 90s, that used to be something that it was OK to say. Now, if you say those things, it's kind of like you get yourself canceled. But. You know, it makes me think of the scene of Scarface when he tells his wife, clean it up, coke whore, or something like that. He tells her when she's doing cocaine at the table. Do you remember that scene from Scarface? Yeah, I do. Later, that sentence came back to bite him later. Absolutely. So, yeah. And so then in the middle of all this mess, they actually had a live-in nanny. Mm -hmm. And she was out of the house the evening of the 23rd, but she came back to the house at one o'clock in the morning. Like why? Yeah. So she came, came in the house. So I'm like, okay, so the kids were home supposedly with Judy. Brian was off with his friend at the casino. The nanny's out, but she comes back to the house at one o'clock in the morning for whatever reason. She goes to bed. She's doing her thing. So after Brian comes home from the casino, puts his stuff down, you know, hollers out for her. He's looking through. He finds her in the bathroom. So he runs over to the nanny's bedroom and he's beating on the door and yelling and trying to, you know, waking her up. And he's like, what's happened? What happened? What's going on? You know, with that. And so, you know, the nanny follows him into the bathroom and he finally calls 911. You know, and he's still on the still on the line and they were walking him through doing some CPR and some things, you know, and when they finally dispatched help to the house and the police and the paramedics and everybody gets there, he's pointing out all these bruises and he was mm -hmm. kind of pointing them out to the nanny 
kind of while he was on the phone with 911. And he's just pointing out bruises on um, his wife's body. I was like, I just thought that was kind of a little odd. odd. You know, you're on nine one. You're on the phone with nine one one. You're supposed to be doing CPR, but you're documenting bruises on her body. And so, um, and he admitted they had argued about money the day before her death, and he indicated that he did hit her that day, mm-hmm. but he thought it was okay to hit tomboys, and the victim was, a, and the victim was a tomboy. And then when he went to trial, he denied ever hitting her. Why would it be okay to hit a tomboy? <laughs> I mean, why would it be okay to hit anybody? But why, why in his mind was it okay to hit a tomboy? He had the speculation that if you hit me, if you're, if you're willing to hit a man, be willing to take it like a man. It was something like that to his, like what he believed. He truly believed that it was okay. And I saw pictures of them, like from their wedding and so, some early pictures. And I never got the sense that she was a tomboy. She was cute. Yeah, she was a very girly girl. So Yeah, I, she was a cute little petite thing. So I'm not really sure where the tomboy thing came from. I'm still like questioning the where this money's from. They have a live-in nanny. They live in Awatuki. Okay. They're able to, like, he's able to go on the spending spree. Like, why does she work as a salesperson at Neiman Marcus? Like... That, that some of this stuff doesn't make sense to me. Like some of the background of this whole case or their story just doesn't add up to me. It, it keeps bringing more questions more than solving it. Yeah, I just I could not really find where the money trail was because he seemed to like to spend it. Mm-hmm. He really seemed to have some some fluid income, you know. And so I just thought it was odd too that the morning of the twenty third, his uh, business assistant arrived at their home and she saw Judy and saw that there were no marks or bruises or anything on her. And I'm thinking, well, how much when you stop by in the morning to do whatever it was you were doing, drop off paperwork or whatever. I, I don't even know what her role was, but she's like, Oh, I didn't see any bruises. Um, how much of her could you see? Could Yeah. What, what was she wearing that maybe she was hiding it because she didn't want you to see. Yeah, I mean, maybe she was hiding and maybe she didn't have any, but I mean, the, so I would say if I stopped by somebody's house to do something and I saw them and I say, I didn't see any bruising, I would assume that would be face, neck and like arms. Yeah. But I don't know what's under your shirt. And I, did she have a long sleeve shirt or robe on? Uh, I don't know. I just thought that was odd that that was in there. The assistant said there were no bruises. Yet when we found the body, it looked like she was just, you know, in, in the ring with Tyson. She was covered with bruises. It's very odd. I think, you know, I think what the, this whole case really captivated, you know, a lot of people around the Valley was kind of like this weird murder theory, right? About this whole cocaine situation and the behavior that Brian was having, like he was just a blabbermouth. Like he was just talking crazy stuff and saying whatever he wanted. But I think the most important one was that these two attractive couple that are like living this great life. And then it just went dark. Yeah, they were married for six years. And uh, she had talked to friends and family uh, about the fact that her husband had hit her and the fights they had had. So that that was never really a secret. How many of them were in front of the kids really wasn't clear. Because at the time of the murder, uh, Ricky was only five years old and her brother Nicholas was only three. So I don't really know, you know, what those kids can remember. It almost is like they wanted to close this case as quickly as possible. But at the same time, like there wasn't a lot of evidence to point fingers at one person. I know there wasn't because the the police interviewed Ricky and then uh, somebody from like the child services and Mm -hmm. welfare interviewed Ricky. And she just had completely contradictory testimony. She was all over the place. Right. Which is... she, she was, was five only years five. Old. Exactly. I don't, I don't know what five. these people were expecting. And she didn't want to tell on mommy and daddy. And, you know, she didn't know what was going on. And now, you know, she lost her mom. She's traumatized. So I don't know what they what they thought that they were going to kind of... Come get out of this. Exactly. But what was interesting was um, it was 30 hours after her death before they even started the autopsy. And they had just conflicting ideas coming just from the Maricopa Medical Examiner's Office. Mm -hmm. So Brian went ahead and 
admitted to Detective Petrosino that Judy used cocaine and diet pills. And the police, like I said, did find a bag of white powder in her purse, but nobody told the medical examiner. So he's, you know, he's got a, he doesn't have any pretense. He's just going ahead and doing the autopsy. And so he noticed, you know, she had bruises on the right side of her neck and her left cheek, and she had abrasion on her nose and minor bruises all over her body. Uh, she had kind of a black eye and broken blood vessels uh, in her eyes, which um, they usually refer to as petechial hemorrhaging, and that's that can be indicative of strangulation. But um, he found some hemorrhaging on the inside of her throat, but he couldn't possibly say whether or not she had been choked to death. So there was some hemorrhaging there, but then cocaine causes hemorrhaging. I was going to say also the diet pills, they thin out your blood, so... Yeah, so any combination of that could have caused, and they really didn't have any marks on the out. I mean, there was some bruising, but they really didn't have a lot. To like say a fingerprint or a hand. Yeah, to really say definitively that she was, you know, strangled or choked. So he went on and he was working his autopsy, and of course they get to where you know they go in the end of the skull and they they check the brain, and that's when he found uh, the ruptured arteries, and she died of an intracerebral hemorrhage. So that's just the bleeding in the brain. And there gets to be enough bleeding, and it just causes pressure on the brain. And it goes slowly. I mean, it can take minutes to hours, but you get enough pressure uh, in the in the head because with the skull, it can't go anywhere, and you just get enough pressure that pushes on the brain, and eventually it can just stop your respirations. And it can cause it can cause you. And in fact, that's a lot of speculation about what happened with Bob Saget that he his somehow right. hit the back of his head and he probably had a headache and didn't think anything of it and kept doing what he was doing. And in the meantime, he was having a slow bleed. And eventually, hours later, it, it killed him. Right. So it's not something that always happens fast. You know, it can affect your breathing. It can make you vomit. It can make you dizzy. You can see double vision. There's quite a few uh, symptoms that you can have. But if you're home alone... There's nobody really to, nobody there. to, yeah, nobody to report it to. So I'm, I don't think she vomited because there wasn't anything at the crime scene that indicated she was, don't know if she had trouble walking, don't know about her breathing. She was just found dead. But if she was having trouble walking and she was having irregular breathing, was she staggering around? And that's and how she I, has you know, the bruises. And, and she fell. Yeah, she fell. And it was because she fell. Mm-hmm. Because that could happen with her with her injury, and you know we know that cocaine just can cause you know horrible bleeding, and that's why like a lot of people would just have these nose bleeds, and they would have to go into the hospital and pack the nose, and it would just abs the cocaine would eventually just eat holes in the septum of your mm -hmm. of your nose, and that's it was very very common with cocaine use. That was one of the questions I was going to have for you was actually like. When you're a cocaine user, doesn't your septum start to like deteriorate where that would be something that the medical examiner would be able to say, hey, she was somebody that was probably using cocaine more than just this one time. Yeah. And they were saying that she she was kind of a recreational user of it. I don't know how much you have to use before it shows up. I do know that um, that was an issue uh, for musician Stevie Nicks. She did a lot of cocaine, of course. Um, people that live here know that she's from Paradise Valley. And she was treated here many times by paramedics and many times at Paradise Valley Hospital where they would rush her into the ER and they would have to pack her nose. And she literally almost had no, no uh, septum in her nose mm -hmm. because of the cocaine use. So I mean, fortunately, she was able to, you know, to kick it and get better, go through rehab and, you know, have a great rest of her life. But at that point in her life in the 80s, um, she really did some damage to her nose and was really susceptible to horrific nosebleeds. It's crazy. It's crazy how this one little powder could really start deteriorating that in your nose. Yeah. So when the doc was doing the autopsy and he found the cerebral hemorrhage, he pretty much determined that she died of a stroke. Mm -hmm. And he was he nobody said anything, so he wasn't looking for anything. Now, keep in mind when they go through the autopsy, they take blood and they do toxicology, but toxicology can take some time. Right. 
some of these tests, you know, they'll know in a couple hours, some tests can take upwards of a few weeks. So he's going through and then he sees this horrific hemorrhage in the brain and he's like, oh, it's a normal, healthy woman. She's 30, she's 30 years old. Wow. She looks like she had a stroke. So that's where he was leaning. So his preliminary was she died of a stroke. So it wasn't until later when they get back some of the toxicology, they go, oh, look what we found. There's some cocaine. So they went back in. And now the experts are all varied on how much cocaine was in her system. So we go from large amounts of cocaine to she had some cocaine. Now her body was, you know, 30 hours before they even started the autopsy. We don't know because Brian and his friend left the night before mm -hmm. at like 11. So, you know, sometime between 11 and five, this incident happened. And then, you know, by the time they took her away and did the autopsy, who, who knows, it, it could have been, you know, almost 48 hours after that, by the time they got to the autopsy. So part of the experts were debating, they were going, well, but she didn't have that much cocaine in her system and it, it broke down into the metabolites. So when a drug breaks down, it breaks down into like it's subparticles. Well, at the 30 hour mark, yeah, it would have broken down. Mm -hmm. You're not Long gonna, enough. Yeah. So there really wasn't an accurate way to tell how much cocaine was there. So I just, I just thought that was kind of interesting. It was like, well, it was there, it was measurable and we're getting varied, uh, depending on the, depending. who the expert was that was looking at the results, we get varied testimony, testimony about opinions. how, yeah, how much was actually in there. And I, I do know that when this case was coming about, because they talked about the bruising and some of the domestic violence, uh, the media just took off and they we're just running with, oh, she was severely beaten. It was a big domestic mm -hmm. violence. He beat her to death and he's just using the cocaine to cover it up. And then um, detectives just fed right into that. Oh, they yeah. just were like, just oh, that's a great angle. And they just took off. And again, I think, Matt, it was just tunnel vision. They just took off, mm -hmm. you know, on this. Oh, you know, they were having arguments. They were fighting over money. They were fighting over cocaine. And they just went full force. I don't know about, I don't even know if that's even a possibility of shoving cocaine down somebody's throat. Physically, is that something that you could do? You know, I don't know because I'm thinking if, okay, if you go by the theory that he was beating her uh, and she was weakened, mm -hmm. how, I mean, I would have thought they would have found a bunch of cocaine in her mouth. If she could yeah. swallow, how are you going to get the cocaine in her throat? Mm-hmm. That's my questions exactly, like, that I have, like, the... It doesn't add up. So, but then, so once they found the toxicology report, the medical examiner went back through and he decided that the result of her death was the intracerebral hemorrhage secondary to the cocaine intoxication. So he believed that, yes, yeah, she did die of the cerebral bleed, but it was a result of cocaine. And still nobody was really sure about how much amount. cocaine was in there. Right. And I thought it was interesting that police went and they um, interviewed some of Judy's coworkers and they uh, had told investigators that Brian often would show up at her job and humiliate her in public. And they, uh, he presented himself as a vile loudmouth for whom inappropriate behavior was the norm. So I guess they were quite used to his attitude and his mouth and his presence so um, one witness said that, um, that, or that she told police that Judy had bought uh, about $1,900 worth of jewelry and she made the comment to this witness. She says, I'll keep it unless he kills me. So was that, you know, foreboding or was yeah. she just, oh, I bought $1,900 worth of jewelry. I hope he doesn't kill me for buying it. I, I don't know how to take that sentence. Yeah. Like, is he, is she joking or not joking? Yeah. Is he going to, you know, kill you, you know, finger air quotes, is he going to kill you because you bought $1,900 worth of jewelry or you bought $1,900 of jewelry and you're afraid that at some point in your life, he's going to kill you. Yeah. That it's going to come back and bite you. Yeah. So yeah. And his, I know his, her in-laws didn't like him. You know, he, he would have lots of rants. They had arguments in front of the children. I think one of the interesting things, like not just all these medical examiners that were involved in reviewing you know, her 
body and stuff was that one of the jurors was actually a medical doctor. Yeah. And and when they were asking him, um, when Brian was on the stand like, testifying, he was discussing like his concerns of his, you know, his wife's cocaine addiction. And he stated like he came to the conclusion that she just couldn't put it down, that it was like a potato's chip. Once you start, you can't put it down. And the medical doctor that was the juror, he threw his hands up and was like, oh, my God, this guy. (laughs) (laughs) So it's kind of like, you know, sometimes you kind of want to know who these jury people, like the 12 people that get selected for the jury, because you kind of get to see some kind of like, you know, this kind of weighed this way and this weighed that way on their decision, because... If I was a medical doctor and had some experience or you know, I don't know what kind of practice he had, but for him to have thrown his hands up and be like, what is this guy doing or saying? Obviously didn't go very well. I don't know. Not I've in never, his favor, at least. I've never done cocaine, but I guess if I go by that, you know, you, you can't just do one snort. <laughs> I guess not. <laughs> yeah. So they, they were estimating that she took a large dose one to two hours before her death. And they were estimating 500 to 1,000 milligrams of cocaine. And 1,000 milligrams would be fatal to most people. And 500 milligrams would be fatal to up to half of the population, whether they had a tolerance or not. So I thought that was kind of interesting. It makes me think now. sorry to interrupt you really quick, but it makes me want to think now, you know, as we're talking about this case together, is that, you know, if she was enduring a lot of abuse or, you know, who knows, like his infidelities or whatever she was putting up with, she felt the easiest escape was to like drug herself with cocaine. And she's like, maybe I just kill myself with the cocaine. It could be that. But when I looked and they were saying, well, she took it one to two hours before her death, he was at the casino. Now, whether he whether he circled back and supposedly shoved the cocaine down her throat. I don't think so. I'm having trouble with that one. Mm-hmm. You know, but did she take it and not pay attention or not care? I don't know. Possibility. But she, you know, they did say she had a considerable amount of cocaine in her system. But then, okay, so we know that Judy did it because friends and family knew that, you know, she did it, even if it was occasional and recreational. So here... You know, they're trying to do the autopsy. Like I said, it can it can take weeks to get the toxicology reports back and get their final report and have it, you know, completed and released. You know, the police, you know, are, are in contact with the medical examiner and they kind of have an idea of what direction to go. But it's usually not uh, released to the public. And so here's Brian walking around telling anyone who will listen that, once the autopsy and toxicology reports were completed, that he would be um, cleared of any wrongdoing and that his wife will be found to have died of a cocaine overdose. Wow, that was t- two weeks before the report was officially released. He's telling a co-worker and other people that the autopsy is going to show she died of cocaine overdose. I mean, he probably already suspected that because maybe they argued about her cocaine usage. I mean, we don't know. We weren't there. But it's a possibility that he just kept this whole, like, idea of calling her a cocord, that that was his reasoning that that's how she died. And so he just kept building on that story. Why he would keep opening up his mouth and dig himself in a deeper hole is another story. Yeah. Then we have the mysterious box that was sent to her parents. Mm-hmm. So this is, you know, after her death, this box, and, and I know some people speculate, but I have to believe that he sent the box because after her death, this box shows up at her parents and it has some personal effects in it. And I guess his handwriting in the note was identified by the nanny and his executive assistant. And he wrote, a note in the box that says every item has a story. And then on October 6th, he was calling Judy's mom and he called twice once to say he shipped the box and then called again to ask if it arrived. Hmm. And so, um, in the box, a rolled up dollar bill, two short plastic straws, a purple pen cap, and then a small bag containing just over a gram of cocaine. And what was weird was when the box got there, Judy's mom just let it sit in the house for like a month. She didn't even care to open it. And then she opened it and 
she, you know, finds this stuff and she, they believe that Eptonoff was sending them a message that Judy used cocaine. And I really think this was part of his defense and what he was showing. Oh my God, look, you know, she, she did cocaine. This is how she died. I didn't have anything to do with it, but, and I know you have some conspiracy as, as to who else would have <laughs> sent this box, but I, you know, his handwriting was verified by two sources and who else would have wanted to send this box? I don't know, but he definitely thinks that from his perspective, I should say, it's not just like a, my conspiracy that I just thought of, but, (laughs) but it's his theory that, you know, many other people, what he stated was that many people had access to this box before it got mailed off. So, you know, Judy's friends, the neighbors, the maids, even the, um, detective Joe Petrosino, he had access to it. So he's like, I know it wasn't me. You'd have to be an idiot to send dope to the people who already think killed your daughter. And he's like, so they ask him, do you think the detective sent that dope on your behalf? He's like, I'm not accusing him, but you get my point. And so it definitely raises like, it wouldn't be the first time or not the, you know, it wouldn't be like something where a detective did plant evidence on people. Cause especially when it comes to drugs, it has happened in the past. I'm not saying he did, but it definitely like, there's no proof outside of what you're saying, the letter that they confirmed it was his handwriting, but did they do a handwriting analysis with an expert? I uh, you know, I don't know. Cause if they're just going off of like, Oh, the nanny said that it is his handwriting or that it's a friend that said, Oh, the executive secretary saying, Oh, it is his handwriting. That's not real. Like, a hundred percent saying it's his, I would think that they would hire an, an expert to come do handwriting analysis. You would think, but I mean, who else? I mean, I, I don't know. I just feel like he was going out of his way to show, look, look, she did cocaine. Mm-hmm. What I think is funny too, is if he did it, that was so dumb because that's how he got the, the 28 years for trafficking across state lines. I mean, it brings up the question also about the, like, John Bonet's mom, that she wrote the ransom letter. If that's the case that they didn't, they they wouldn't have hired a handwriting analysis to compare the handwriting, right? Yeah. And that case was weird because both sides, there was probably 20 handwriting experts that looked at that handwriting and half of them were on one side and half of them were on the other. And these are all handwriting experts. And so... You know, I thought that was... It has its, like, you know, back and forth, right? Like, would the handwriting analysis said, oh, Brian didn't do it, or would have that person said, like, nope, it's matching. Either way, it's like, how many people can can forge a handwriting? It's pretty common that it happens that somebody can write like somebody and copy it. Yeah, exactly. To me, it's not really 100% proof. Unless there's a video that shows me that Brian wrote the letter, then I'd believe it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. That, I just I've come down to this to, in in the true crime world. It's like if there's no video, it didn't happen. <laughs> oh, so what about all these cases before video? I know that's that's why I think there's so much like conspiracies and and speculation that happens in these cases is because we don't have like an actual physical proof because we're used to cases nowadays in this day and age that they have video footage for everything. So it's just, you know, it's just something that I'm throwing out there, guys, because, you know, I'm into conspiracy (laughs) theories, but, you know. (laughs) I'm waiting to see how she ties John F. Kennedy into it. I'm waiting. (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah, I just think that that, that's a little suspicious, I guess. Oh, JFK wrote the note. This is definitely way past his lifetime, so. (laughs) (laughs) Unless he wrote it as a spirit. I I doubt it. (laughs) Oh, I don't know. Unless you believe he's dead. (laughs) And I thought he was in Kalamazoo with Elvis working in a McDonald's (laughs) drive-thru. Jeez. (laughs) But I do say that, you know, this case is definitely like, you know, he got sentenced and he's in in prison now. What I want to talk about, too, is that, you know, he did go... And appeal this because of all of the speculations and nothing was like really proven. One of the things that, you know, make my, make me like kind of interested in this case a lot was that the Arizona Innocent Project took on this case to do the appeal. And 
usually the innocent projects, when they take a case, it's because they really believe that there's something here that they can fight with. And they don't just pick up random cases. They truly do their work behind it. So I definitely have some, I want to know what, you know, what kind of stuff they found. I wish I could get more details on it. Like they obviously had some kind of evidence to take it to like, to fight for him. So. Yes. Cause I know that Aftonoff took it to the Supreme Court, Arizona mm-hmm. Supreme Court, and they upheld the conviction, which was interesting because part of what he was complaining about was he didn't think that his daughter was a competent witness. Mm-hmm. And I almost kind of have to agree with that. I mean, she was a traumatized five-year-old. I, exactly. I, I don't know how, how competent um, she could have been. If anybody I suspect in all of this, and this is my my speculation, conspiracy, like I'm going to share with you, is brought up a red flag for me is the nanny. The fact that she left and then came back. Was this, was this a normal behavior for her? And then she's like, goes on and says that, oh, this letter was written by Brian. Like, was the nanny having an affair with Brian and we don't know about it and she wanted to get rid of the wife? Ooh, good conspiracy point. Definitely makes you question things. Yeah, you put that and then you put it with his arrogance and that because at one point he stated they will never have a case. Mm-hmm. But what I thought was interesting too was I have a quote here from Paul Rubin who uh, people from Phoenix uh, know uh, who Paul Rubin is and he writes for a little publication down here called The New Times and he has written for years and he has covered some of the most infamous Arizona trials. And he has seen, he's been in a lot of courtrooms. He's seen a lot of people testify. And I just thought it was interesting that I had um, a little quote from him. And he said, here you have a guy who oozed arrogance and also thinks he's a little better in every aspect of life than you or I or anybody, you know, and I don't think the jury liked him. I don't think they connected with him. And when Mm -hmm. he got on the stand, it called his wife a co-core you could just that see was the it. jury just, they just were like, yeah, we're done. We're done with this whole mess. And, you know, Paul, in his um, article that he wrote, The Final Straw, one of the things that Brian said to him was, I know if I had shut up, they probably would have ruled it an accident. So I quote Brian. And this was a month before the Phoenix police arrested him on a charge of murdering his wife. Yeah. And I know he also feels that the case focused on his character rather than her death. Mm-hmm. Well, he definitely brought a lot of attention to himself, more than he he should have. And maybe he's trying to far reach and get like his 15 minute of fame out of this, you know, because he does even go out after his wife died. He even tries to go get a discount at Neiman Marcus. He tries to use her discount. (laughs) Like, what? Her employer is going to know she's not alive. Like, why would you try to go use a discount? Oh, God. And I thought it was interesting, too, is. Paul Rubin also, um, he doesn't really believe that the evidence was very convincing, but his ego is what did him in. Mm-hmm. You know, if he could have just chilled and maintained this, this case might have had a very different outcome. Yeah. And the crazy part is that, you know, years later, the 48 hours brought in like four different forensic experts um, to just kind of study the medical testimony and evidence from the trial. One was Dr. Lee uh, Hearn, the chief uh, toxicologist from Miami, uh, Dade County, Florida. Dr. Edward Briglia, who was a chief toxicologist for Suffolk County, New York. Dr. Charles Wetley, Suffolk County medical, chief medical examiner. And Dr. Don Ray, he's now retired, who spent more than 24 years as a chief medical examiner in Seattle. Among them, they had studied hundreds of deaths from cocaine. And none of them agreed with the prosecution scenario that Judy was knocked unconscious and then murdered when her husband stuffed cocaine down her throat. Yeah. And they're, they believe that it is almost impossible to stuff cocaine down a semi-conscious person. There's just so many, you know, medical examiners that studied this, like, you know, toxicology from cocaine that are saying that there's no way that this is physically possible. Yeah. Cause even Dr. Lee Hearn said in his, when they asked him like for his, you know, professional opinion, he said, I think she was a cocaine user and I think she was binging the night of her death. And that caused the cerebral bleed. Cocaine raises your blood pressure. 
Yeah. So kind of what you said at the beginning. Yeah. So, you know, again, and like what you were saying, you know, with the affairs and the money and the women and the whatever he was doing, because if you have this kind of attitude, I'm sure this guy was doing whatever he wanted. She was dealing with all that stress, had a, a three-year-old and a five-year-old in the home. You know, um, maybe she did binge. Oh, he's going to the casino. I'm just going to kick back and light some candles, you know, come up to the tub and soak or whatever she was thinking. And that was it. That was it. Yeah. And who knows? I mean, it doesn't say on here, but she could have mixed some of this cocaine and diet pills with alcohol. That just, that's just like a disaster waiting to happen. Yeah. And even if Brian had like tried to shove that cocaine down her throat, it was also uh, believed on the uh, panel of experts. It was actually a briglia. And he said the notion that a single acute dose, you know, oral overdose is just not consistent with the facts, mm-hmm. you know, and I think that she had been using and it was over time and that's what caused the bleed. Yeah. So he could be innocent of murder. So, I mean, that definitely is kind of what, you know, these four, uh, medical examiners were saying, you know, there's no evidence that she was forced to swallow the cocaine. I think it's possible that there's an innocent man in jail and innocent of murder is certainly something that they, they speculate. One of his um, things that he brought to um, the his appeal was all the different opinions that the toxicologists had. And he was like, oh, it's, it's, it's insignificant or it's insufficient evidence because the, all the differences in the interpretation. And it was interesting that the court looked at that and they were like, yeah, but they're all experts and that's their opinion. And the jury chose to believe what they wanted to believe, you know, so they weren't like lay people that were confused. These were experts that were brought in. And even though their opinions varied and whether it's, you know, a sleepwalking case, or uh, if you're looking at, you know, Chauvin and the use of force and the experts come in when they testify, then it's up to the jury to decide who they believe or who did a better job of explaining it or whatever. So even it's, it's not uncommon for experts to come to trial and disagree because you have the prosecution expert and then you have the defense who brings in an expert who usually has a completely opposite point of view because they're trying to bring up what they believe happened. So this happens all the time. So the the court wasn't going to waste time with that. Yeah. And the appeal ended up getting denied. So, and the conviction still stands. Yeah. But what I did think was interesting that did come out of this is because there was all the speculation about the experts that the National Association of Medical Examiners is currently working on new guidelines and they want to uh, establish what kinds of tests to do and when, you know, from the time of death have a timeline and this will be our standard. We do this test da 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 in this order so that it's standardized so that there's less, um, variation in opinion. There's going to be, okay, this is the procedure. We do A, B, C, and, you know, if not, then we do G, E, F, whatever, and they have the protocols. Which comes at a perfect time, especially with all these fentanyl overdoses and stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we definitely need something like that. It needs to be a standard. But yeah, that kind of, kind of concludes our little speculation on this case. I just, I just honestly... Uh, this case to me was, it was all over the place because there was no like physical proof that he did this. But at the same time, it's kind of like he kept digging his own grave the more he spoke. And his attorney tried to convince him not to take test to not go to the stand. And he went against it because he was so sure of himself. <laughs> yeah, it reminds me of something currently that's happening that someone that's out there having to deal with a... Uh potential for a murder trial that can't keep his mouth shut. And that would be Alec Baldwin. It's like, dear God, stop talking. Yeah, it's, I don't know, but these, these cases, it just makes me remind people to go back and listen to our case of the Miranda rights. <laughs> yes. Yes. Go back, go back and, and, and redo Ernest. And yeah, <laughs> there, there's a reason that you have rights. Please use them. You know, stop going to the media and trying to try your case in the media. Because every time you say something out loud to somebody or to the media, then you've said it and they can use it against you. And you can't deny it because there's a record of you saying it. It's repeated over and over. Yeah. I mean, when you sit down and have a, an, an interview on ABC and it's, you know, run on national network, I 
people are going to watch it. Mm-hmm. You, you can't go back and go, well, I never said that. Really? Because here it is. Well, thanks, Kat, for um, listening to my crazy conspiracy behind this case. Uh, <laughs> you know I love you. You know I love the, your crazy conspiracies. Side, right? <laughs> <laughs> I always excited to see what you come up with next. I know. I think my husband gets, he, he loves it. He's like, it's crazy the stuff that you think of that nobody's ever thought of or it makes you question. <laughs> it makes you just kind of go, hmm. I would be perfect at the working as FBI, like coming up with conspiracies and trying to debunk the conspiracies. I don't know. <laughs> it's weird. So before we get going, I'll uh, leave everybody with the question of the week. Uh, who was the last female prisoner executed in the U.S.? And this one we thought was some completely pers- different person. So Yes. Well, until then, we ask you all guys to stay and to listen to the next episode, where our next episode's going to be the 1999 missing child case of Mikkel Biggs. Yes, it's a good case. It's still ongoing. So if there's anybody out there that has a possible clue, you could be the one that breaks the case, because this one's been hanging for a lot of years. Yes, too long. Well, um, we ask you guys to make sure to share our podcast with your friends and family make sure to let them know we're on all platforms so uh, make sure to share that check us out on our website and definitely interact with us on our facebook we love the interactions and thank you for all those to do interact with us now yes we definitely do appreciate it want to put out a big thanks and we're getting more and more people that are asking for permission to uh, post on our webpage. so please we just encourage you please come on bring discussions talk about cases you know, it's, it's our little groups, so whatever you want to talk about, please feel free. Absolutely. But until then, you guys take care, be kind and, uh, love one, love one another. <laughs> Absolutely. So, okay. Have a good guys. Have a good right. week and take care. We'll, we'll see you next week. See you then. All right. Bye. All right. Bye. Time for Crime is a podcast about true crime, prison life, and the opinions from the people who've worked on the inside. Please follow us and leave a five-star review on your favorite podcatching software. Help us get our voice out there. You can get more information about the podcast and this case at www.timeforcrime.net. Look for us on Twitter at Time for Crime One or on Facebook at Time for Crime Vanny Cat. Feel free to leave us a comment on our voicemail at 623-292-5871. We might even put your call on the podcast. Like it, love it, and share it, but please credit the hosts Vanessa Nunez and Kathy Delaney for their commitment to the podcast and service to the community. We'd like to send a special thanks to Nickel Ninth for the music in this podcast. We'd also like to thank Dave Kaiser and Peter Ninth for their support of the podcast and website. And most importantly, we'd like to thank you, the listener. Without you, we couldn't bring you this podcast. Take care, everyone.